This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Paris Brown. Her formative years were spent in the historic neighborhood of Fort Greene in Brooklyn, New York. From there, her family moved to Long Island, and when it came time for college, she made her way to the DMV to attend Howard University. Since graduating college, Paris has dedicated her career to business development and marketing. Nowadays, she uses her talents to continue the mission of a well-regarded local publication, The Baltimore Times. It's been years since I've cracked open a newspaper. I used to read them all the time as a kid. Well, just the comics, honestly. I read the ones that made me laugh, like Curtis and, of course, the Boondocks. I also read the ones that completely went over my head, like Doonesbury or Shoe, the one where the guy is a stressed-out bird or something. Nowadays, I get most of my news from the internet and, of course, public radio. Support your local public radio stations. And what annoys me sometimes is the paywall some newspaper websites put up to access the content. But... I get it. Times are tough in print media, and for those who have gone digital, gotta still make that money. However, in cities all around the nation, dozens of hyper-local publications are thriving and continue to service their readers in that sweet spot. They aren't so big that they grapple with the woes of running a large print publication, but aren't so small they look like something your deranged neighbor made during one of his conspiracy theory benders. Enter the Baltimore Times. Started in the 80s, the married couple who endeavored to tell only, quote, positive stories about positive people, unquote, began printing the newspaper and distributing it to the black neighborhoods in the city. The newspaper caught on and eventually the Times paper was expanded to include different cities in Maryland. Nowadays, it's down to the Annapolis Times and, of course, the Baltimore Times, and Paris Brown is the associate publisher of the Baltimore Times. Like many New Yorkers, she moved to the DMV area and has settled in Baltimore, but I'll let her tell her story from the top. I grew up in Fort Greene um, houses. Uh, It wasn't until I was older that that was referred to as, you know, a project, but it, it it was fun growing up. We, we did fun things like we played outside all day. We, um, we played things like handball, stickball, you know, no one really had a, uh, a, a, a bat uh, and we played uh, oh my good hopscotch uh, double dutch <laughs> you know, those are the days when you, you stayed outside and, and you played all day and at the end of the day your parents called you in and so it was for us uh, not necessarily not leaving the block but really not leaving the quad area um, and in the summer times it was a lot of fun we they had sprinkler systems or you would have the fire department would have a spray that they would come and change the fire hose or the, 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 um, oh, what do you call it? I'm sorry. Fire hydrant, hydrant, right. And they would put a spray on it. Um, in the neighborhood, you got dressed up in your bathing suit and you ran back and forth across from the sprinklers on those really hot days. And you started yelling and screaming, you know, the kids noise. Yeah. So um, that was really growing up. It, it wasn't, like I said, until I was older that, um, oh, I lived in the projects and, and, you know, there was, it was home for us. Um, it was where you, you formed those relationships. It was a place where everyone had a nickname and it was funny because you really didn't know the person's name. 
<laughs> because everyone, everyone had a nickname. You also didn't know people's last name because you called them by their nickname. And I, I you know, have to tell you, I really, I didn't know my father's name. His nickname was Mooney. And so it wasn't until I was much, much older that I realized that my brother, my oldest brother and my father were junior and senior. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's just do you feel like your lack of like framing on where you lived was a result from your parents doing like a considerable amount of sheltering or you, you just, it's like, you just didn't know what you didn't know. You, you just didn't know what you didn't know. It was, I was, I was raised by my grandparents until I was about 11 years old and it was just, you know, you know, daddy and, and, and mom just looking out for us. I mean, we would go to school. One of the things I always remember uh, that even today is, is, is always concerning to me is that we would be able to walk uh, back and forth from school uh, with my siblings. And you never had to concern yourself about whether or not you were safe. Uh, you know, my grandfather worked, uh, my grandmother stayed home. We came home from school. We had snacks. We lived a happy life. And so I don't know if it was sheltering. It probably more like you just don't know what you don't know. Uh, my my father grew up in the uh, the adjacent. Uh, we we call them houses, right? So Farragut houses, and we grew up in Fort Green houses. And one of the things I found out much later was Fort Green was my grandfather was in the Navy, and there was a the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and so he was on the, the ship. He was a chef for the Navy and Fort Greene, those were houses really for the military. So it, it evolved uh, into what we now know as Fort Greene houses, uh, generally is what you call them. Can you talk to me about your um, experiences in school? Were you zoned for uh, a specific public school? So growing up, uh, I don't know, I don't have children. So I, we, we went to, uh, in, in New York, we call them PS, if it's a public school uh, up to fifth grade, and then IS, if it's intermediate school, which is six, seven, and eighth, and then you go on to high school. So we went across the street uh, to PS 67 for pre-kindergarten and then kindergarten. Uh, we did go to parochial school, most of our, um, I would say um, from one until probably about, uh, gosh, ninth grade, I was in, in parochial, uh, parochial school and then went on to public school. I did move, we did, our family did move to Long Island. So that was a, a different experience, a more suburban experience uh, for us. Hmm. And what did you... What did you miss most when you moved to Long Island? And then when you got to Long Island, what's the thing that you enjoyed um, being available as opposed to something that like wasn't available in Brooklyn? Well, that was easy. So um, I was able, so when you live in the suburbs, one of the things that you get, you that's necessary is a car. And so in high school, you would take driver's ed. And so um, you, everyone on the on your 16th birthday, that was the day that you got your learner's permit. And so in high school in New York, uh, we would take driver's ed for an entire year. And so at, starting at age 15, you would take driver's ed. And when you became 16 on your birthday, you actually went and got your learner's permit. 
uh, back then you had to uh, drive with an adult that was a licensed driver. And so there were time limits on when you can drive, obviously not at night, um, but with a licensed driver. So I think I driver. So I think for me, that was probably the most exciting thing <laughs> living in Long Island is, um, and it was I, for me, and what the interesting thing you should, you should ask that question because I lived in Brooklyn, then I lived in Far Rockaway, we lived in Long Island. I'm trying to think. I don't think I lived in Staten Island. So two boroughs I never lived in was Staten Island and I never lived in uh, the Bronx. Uh, so I moved around a lot. And so by the time I got to Long Island, I think I was just used to moving around. So there was, I was able to adapt uh, to, to um, really the new environment. So it was like, okay, this is different. So what's different about this? And just really embraced it. If the only two boroughs you did not live in were Staten Island and the Bronx, then that means that you've lived in Queens for some time, right? Yes, I did. And we, we called it Jamaica, <laughs> Jamaica, Queens. Yeah. And, and that's when I went to intermediate school there. <laughs> okay. I was going to ask because my mom, she's from New York and she lived in uh, Jackson Heights. Oh, okay. And that is, where is that? I've heard of Jackson Heights. I don't know. I don't know if it's close to Flushing, Queens, because I remember going up there when I was a kid. And I think the house that my mom grew up in is now like a church or something like that. It's been it's been converted over. But I just distinctly remember there uh, visiting there. And then, like you said, we went to Jamaica, Queens. You know, of course, you got to get the beef patty uh, with the cocoa bread con queso. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very formative experience for me. So I can only imagine what it was like having that as your life uh, every day. So you went to intermediate school in um, Jamaica, Queens, and then where was um, where was high school and, and what did you do after high school? So high school was in Central Islip and that is um, on Long Island. Uh, so it, it, it is in the suburbs uh, and it was a different environment as a black middle-class environment. There was a, a black developer uh, that developed uh, the area that we lived in. And so uh, everyone who owned their homes were uh, black and middle-class. And so it was, it, was, it was different. I didn't find it to be a shock though. Um, there was, seemed to be equality across the board uh, when it came to what people had and, and how we lived. When you... We're living in Long Island, and as you said, you lived in like a predominantly black middle class uh, neighborhood. How did that make you feel as somebody who came from, you know, Fort Greene in Brooklyn? Or do you ever did you ever have experiences where you were uh, where you were brought face to face with like the class disparity that um, black people can be a part of sometimes? No, and it's interesting. I for us we. I can't say that I, I, I remember that. We, we never felt, you know, my, we, we were taken very good care of. So there was never a point where we felt like we didn't have. Um, so no, I actually didn't really feel the difference. I remember vividly, we had moved to Long Island City and I remember, uh, I was sitting there one day, and I think from that day until this day, because I tend to be a very jovial person and personality, and I had this moment where I thought, wow, we are just so incredibly blessed, and I felt so thankful 
for how my mom had taken care of us and our family. And from that moment on, I, I, it was just a shift in me. I was just really grateful and thankful for the life that, is, that was provided for me. And, and perhaps we were sheltered. I don't know. I, I just, it was just really cool growing up. It was, it was nice. Hmm. And what did you do after high school? So after high school, I wanted to go to HBCU. And so I applied to Howard and I applied to Hampton and Hampton accepted me conditionally. So I ended up at Howard University. Um, I think now when you talk about a shift and a shock, I think that probably was more of a shock to me. Um, I think at that point, uh, so I, I show up at Howard, and I don't know if you know anything about Howard University. So I was, of course, uh, all of the freshman uh, females, they go to the quad. You're assigned to the quad. And so I arrived there, and, you know, there are men all lined up against a wall, and they're looking for the new, uh, I would say, fresh women, freshmen coming in. <laughs> and um, I, I think that was the first time in my life, it was the first time in my life that I was introduced to this upper middle class. I mean, you had students that were driving, you know, Mercedes Benz and BMWs and, you know, all of these fine cars. And I mean, they're going to school. And, and for us, you know, my, my, my father was in, in, in the armed services, so I had some GI Bill support, um, but you know, my parents had to pay for it, and we weren't exactly rich, but you had students that lived this whole lifestyle, and I mean, they're showing up with cars and money, and I'm thinking, and I think at that point, that's when I, I think I felt the disparity. That's when I, I was like, okay, you've been missing something in your life. <laughs> that is when it truly, I think I, I not only saw the difference, I experienced difference. And that the, the experiencing that uh, differentiation, did you ever feel like less than, or was that ever put upon you by your, by your, your fellow like classmates and students? I'm going to say for the most part, no. And I tell you why. One of the things I appreciated at being being at Howard was that everyone was Black, right? So you had the professors, you had the students, and I didn't feel like I had to um, prove myself. Uh, but it was interesting. The teachers were equally as hard on you. And, and some of them would talk to you. They're like, you will do this work. And it, it almost reminded you of, of your parents. Uh, they took an interest in you, they inspired you, and it was inspiring for me to, uh, to, to have professors, um, Black professors, you know, teaching and instructing. I, um, one of the things, I, I think that's when I realized I was such a rebel and that I just didn't want to go the way others I didn't want to follow the crowd. And, and a good example of that was, you know, the sororities and fraternities. I thought, I don't have to be in one of those just to be accepted. I'm mm. fine just the way I am. And just, and then the way they would parade around campus, I thought, how can they, anyone make you do those <laughs> things? Like, I just, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Um, I think I have more of an appreciation of it now, um, now that I'm older. 
uh, I can look back and I, I, I see the camaraderie that they had. But at that time, I, I just felt I was fine the way I was. And I think that has a lot to do with how my mother brought me up. Just, there was nothing wrong with me. We'll be right back after a quick break, and when we return, I continue my conversation with Paris Brown, associate publisher of the Baltimore Times. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and before the break, my guest Paris Brown spoke of her time at Howard University and the HBCU experience. As we continue our talk, Paris talks about why she left Howard and life after college. I want to move to your um, current position as associate publisher of the Baltimore Times. But before we jump into that, um, can you just explain why you ended up uh, leaving Howard and then finishing your degree at at a different college? Um, Yeah, absolutely. It was my mother's influence. I had had taken a test, a a postal test. And so my mother, who, you know, held down a good government job, she felt like uh, I had passed the test and they called me. She's like, well, you need to take this job. And I I reluctantly left Howard um, and went to Baruch. And and when I did go to Baruch, I went to, I worked full-time and went to school full-time. So I ended up graduating a year later. I never, never uh, cut off my friends at Howard. I would literally go to Howard every opportunity that I had. My girlfriends, they became lifelong friends. I have friends from Howard that have been friends ever since. Uh, my ex graduated from Howard uh, Divinity School. So I, I wish I had, um, but I still got a very good education. Um, and I did have that HBCU experience that never left me. So let's talk about the here and now. Uh, as I mentioned before, currently you hold uh, the title of associate publisher of the Baltimore Times. Can you give a little history about the publication and the um, the couple that started it, the, the Brambles? Sure. Um, so... They started, it, it, I, I like to share this history. Uh, so they, they live in a city and um, of course, news watchers, and they get so tired of the negative uh, of reporting, you know, the killings and everything bad that was about black people. And so they thought we want to start a publication that tells the positive stories about positive people, right? And that's what they did. And it started off as a monthly publication. And after a year became a weekly publication. And at the time that it was established, there were five different uh, newspapers. They used to publish the Eastern Shore, the PG County. And there is one more that is escaping my mind right now. Um, But we still today have the Annapolis and and, and the Baltimore Times. And they they grew up in uh, Montserrat, which is in the West Indies. And and (laughs) they would always say, that, so when they started the paper, there were no loans, right? There were no loans. There were no government grants or anything. So they started the paper with a desktop, right? And the staff was uh, working as a labor of love. <laughs> we do get paid today. So, um, so yeah, and, and here we are 36 years later. And um, I'm really excited that the mission of the Baltimore Times has not changed we still report positive stories about positive people. 
So yeah, and, and of course, uh, Joy and Peter, they had to do everything. So Peter was a priest um, at St. Catherine, uh, right, um, not too far from, from where they live. And so when he wasn't, you know, uh, ministering to the congregation, he was delivering papers. So Joy and Peter would spend all weekend delivering 50,000 papers <laughs> and would have newsprint all over them. Uh, but they worked really, really hard to really build a great publication. Uh, so the Baltimore Times has produced several community-based initiatives like the um, the Holiday Digital Shopping Marketplace, among others. Um, as somebody with your skills and expertise in development and marketing, can you explain how putting together an event like that works? Um, yeah, so that is, um, it, it was really interesting. Uh, part of what, um, so the Baltimore Times uh, is part of an association, a National Newspaper Publishers Association, which by the way, this year celebrates 195 years of, um, of black media. And the, the Afro is part of it. As you know, they're 130 years old. Uh, and to, to me, that's amazing. My hat is off to them as the purveyors of history. Uh, I believe that as black papers, we, we write uh, history. And so part of this, um, you know, the idea of this initiative uh, came out of an initiative that uh, we we have uh, in partnership with um, with um, now Meta. And so this idea was presented and I thought, wow, this would be a great idea. And, and you know, they, they showed us a, a shopping website um, and I thought this would be a great thing to do. And one of the things I think that uh, was very important for us as, as we looked at businesses that were impacted, and need not tell you about 40% of black businesses during the pandemic um, closed, right? Nationwide. And we thought we want to do a digital shopping marketplace that would help uh, to expand the reach of black businesses. And so that was really the impetus behind it. Uh, the Baltimore Times has a longstanding history of uh, small business seminars and uh, supporting in partnership and collaboration with banks in corporations to provide technical assistance and the necessary training, regardless of what stage of business uh, that a business is in. It could be a startup, right? It can be one that is um, uh, has been in existence for a few years, or one that's been around for a while and, and, and is looking to increase their skill set and their knowledge and, and to further the sustainability of their businesses. And so, uh, it has a long-standing history of this, and I think that this particular initiative, the digital shopping market marketplace, was just really an extension of what we already do to help to support and help to grow uh, businesses. And so we reached out to businesses. We have a, a database of small businesses that we have worked with over the course of years. Um, and tapped into that database and said, look, we want to do something at no charge for you to help to increase um, um, those who shop your, your websites, your products. And so we wanted to create a, uh, a digital marketplace and it was really a micro website. So it, there were a lot of components of it that we wanted to, um, to ensure a great shopping experience. So we have a great uh, webmaster who put that together. But the other thing we wanted to do is also to 
partner, right? And so we partnered with WEAA, uh, which we were excited about. We partnered with corporations and nonprofit entities such as the Greater Baltimore Urban League to uh, extend the reach, to extend the messaging, and to really help our businesses. And, and it was it was called uh, uh, Give Black for the Holidays, and we were very intentional about it because of the businesses that were impacted um, by COVID. And then you had some that took off, right? Some that pivoted. Uh, but for us, that was our commitment and our, our, our giving back our way to say to the businesses in our community that we support you. And um, well, we this is how we want to support you during the busiest shopping uh, time or season of the year. Baltimore Times was started in 1986. And, and then in 12 years, 12 years later, in 1998, the nonprofit uh, Times Community Services was founded to help continue the newspaper's mission, as you said, of uh, just um, publishing positive stories about the city, as well as uh, collaborating and, and building partnerships with Black businesses and, and other entrepreneurs. Um, would you say that funding from a 501c organization takes the pressure off advertising, I'm sorry, the pressure of advertising off a newspaper, or is it just a different problem to solve? So the nonprofit, that's an organization where through which we do events and we partner. Um, so one of the things that, uh, a few things that the Baltimore, uh, the Times Community Services, excuse me, um, did when it established itself was really interesting initiative, you know, the health fairs and in, in community events like that. They were the forerunner in it. They did one in Mondaman where thousands of people showed up. And so there, uh, yes, it does help in terms of um, uh, events itself in, in, in terms of um, bringing in income uh, for, for, um, for the entity. Um, does it relieve the pressure of uh, advertising? Um, I would <laughs> say not because the, the, the paper itself is, is, is the newspaper. Um, the, the paper is given away for free. However, we do need advertising. It's supported by advertising. So the print publication is driven by advertising. The Times Community Services is 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 our event driven um, mechanism. There, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there in terms of um, you know what's happening with the city, what's happening with the state, and so there 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 are avenues for advertising for us. So yeah, we're um, expanding. So a lot of things that we're doing, um, and, and I'll share that with you. Uh, 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 a little bit later on, but some of the things that we're doing that we're super excited about at the Baltimore Times. Well, let's let's talk about them now because I'm at my last question. Um, oh, okay. What are what are some events and initiatives that are coming up next for the Baltimore Times? Woo! So um, we have so one of the things that um, that um, I, I I love doing, and and that's also as I look at. Uh, collaborative uh, relationships and partnerships is uh, what is of interest to our readers, subscribers, and followers. So I am constantly looking at um, and driven by our analytics and, and what our readers tell us that they're interested in. And so with that information, 
um, looking to uh, form some very interesting um, collaborations um, with institutions, uh, you know, medical and, um, and, and those that we are looking to expand. I think that Baltimore is uh, doing so many things in the technology space and, um, and then the creative space. There's so many emerging new artists um, and so, you know, we're looking to do some exciting things in there. We're looking to partner uh, regionally and being being able to not only just bring local news, but we have people that uh, view uh, the BaltimoreTimes.com from all over. And so, we're excited. We'll be expanding uh, our content uh, based on uh, our readers and viewers and followers' interests. So, you're going to see a lot of that. We are, uh, you're going to see some, if you watch TV locally, you're going to see an exciting um, um, uh, advertising campaign. Uh, they were part of a Comcast Rise initiative. Um, so you will check us out on BET and OWN and, um, and it's, yeah, so excited about, about that also. So there are a lot of things going on, a lot you're going to see digitally from us. As we expanded, we are we have expanded our editorial team. Another exciting thing that's happened at Baltimore Times, we are changing our format. And so you will see a brand new format of the publication that helps to really standardize um, a lot of things for us um, in, in, in terms of our print uh, uh, capability. So yes, you'll see some of that too. That was Paris Brown, associate publisher of the Baltimore Times. You can read the Times on their website, baltimoretimes-online.com. Find them on Instagram as well, at btimesonline. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at wypr.org.